It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers, to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Cameron Jodlowski. And I'm your other co-host, Laura Warren Hughes. We're happy to be here this week. Um, it's kind of kind of an easy, laid-back, chat-around-the-tack-pin kind of a week, wouldn't you say, Cameron? Oh, absolutely there. Just uh, some, some craziness. Um, schedules changing as, as we have busy lives there and, and such. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're excited to be back this week here. Um, and it's good to always just catch up with Laura as well. You know, we have a lot of great guests on that come on as well. Um, but, but sometimes it's just good to just visit with my good friend, Laura. I feel the same way. What's going on up there in cold Wisconsin? Uh, it's, it's not cold. It's very strange. It was 64 degrees. I was grilling today. Uh, again, very strange for November 1st. Um, but, uh, lots of excitement on the farm there. Um, confirmed five does bred here via ultrasound, um, and two, including two of my alpines. So really excited about that there. Um, we did some, um, light fetal counts as well there. So, um, we were able to determine three, uh, on one of them and two on the other, we think, I mean, we think there, but, um, that was all via rectal, um, instead of abdomen on the ultrasound there. So, um, more information to come on those, but, but, uh, I'm pretty excited about those there. Uh, additionally, did some more ultrasound at my dad's place as well, where we confirmed 13 out of 13 bred goats over there. So, um, really, really excited about that. So a lot of ultrasound work this week. I bet your dad was so excited. Yes, he, he was super excited. And I, I don't mean to toot our own horn here, but, you know, lots of excited live action kids. I guess we can call them uh, these kids the, the children of Goat Gab or something like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. So lots of he was just very not weirded out by it, but he's like, I don't really know what to think or do or say. And we're just going down the line, ultrasounding them. And they're like, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we're, we're really excited and, and, and such there. And, and by the end of the 13, he, um, was like, okay, I can, I can, I can see why this is pretty cool now. So did you guys write down like on, um, such and such dough, we think we counted three fetuses so that you can uh, judge against that after they kid and say, yep, we were on spot or eh, missed that one. Yep. Yep. We, we I've got a whole um, sh- note in my iPhone um, on everybody that we did and then what day uh, that we did it on. So um, there's a difference between, you know, whether we went uh, rectally um, in order to do the ultrasound versus um, some of the later does we could do uh, abdominal. We did mostly abdominal um, ultrasounds, um, but a couple of rectal ones as well with my dad because they weren't um, 40 days long yet on those. But uh, yeah, we've got a full list and um, we've got, you know, at least we, we counted at least 12 action babies. Uh, I think I told you that there, but um, it, it seems like my dad's going to have a pretty uh, busy February. That is so exciting. It's always fun when um, a buck that you own gets used somewhere else so you can kind of see what they do, not just in your own herd. So I'm excited for that too. I'm really, We're really excited for it as well there. Um, additionally on the farm, we did some um, barn updates as well there. And when I say barn updates, I mean um, we got to do some um, more dirt work as I, as I referred to it there or water movement work, as I called it. So um, we've got a pretty steep incline from where the barn is, and the barn incline goes right to the driveway. So I didn't really have a driveway because water was moving so fast there. So we put some new drainage dish- new drainage systems in the side hill in order to help water um, not erode away that dirt. Again, um, something you never really think about when you are uh, building a barn. Right. No, but that that sounds like a good plan, especially before those Wisconsin snows melt in the spring and you're like, oh my gosh, it's mud everywhere. So Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what we're really, really worried about there. And that's been on kind of on my mind. Frozen, yeah. The frozen mud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody likes mud season. Uh-uh. Oh. oh, yeah. Laura, what about you? What's happening in your place? Well, I tried to do a little bit of ultrasounding. And, and one of the does that I was most excited about ultrasounding was um, a doe that, that um, my wonderful brother-in-law, Stanton, AI'd for me while I was in Syracuse and, and was pretty excited. She passed her 21 days and she was right at 28 days and she's a real deep body doe and it was just me by myself. So she wasn't terribly cooperative. And, and I thought maybe I saw something by ultrasound, but I wasn't really sure. And I thought, well, I'll have Elizabeth help me when we, we had some time that I had to end up working over the weekend. So it didn't, didn't get done. And then gosh, darn it. Um, Tuesday morning or yeah, Monday evening, Tuesday morning, that doze back in heat. <laughs> and so I'm like, gosh, darn, it was pretty obvious. So I AI'd her again last night and it was a really, it was a really good breeding. It went just textbook. So hopefully this one will take, but it's always frustrating when you have those does that pass over that 21 days and then you get, get your hopes up and you even tell somebody about it. And then, uh, yeah, it, um, it didn't hold through. So that's, you know, a little frustrating. I have some other does that hopefully I'll get ultrasounded this weekend and, and should be able to see. And then a few little kids to, uh, to breed yet. And then hopefully we'll be putting the cap on that breeding season for this fall. So Laura, how many goats have you like not touched as I'll call it, or like haven't, haven't, you know, they're, they're open. You've seen them in heat maybe, but you really haven't done anything probably three. And that's a little frustrating. One of them is a beautiful dry yearling that I just dearly love, but she's a little bit of a, a spooky goat personality wise. And it's hard to tell if she's in heat. And, and I am afraid I'm going to stick her up on a stand this weekend and take a speculum and take a peek around because I don't know that I've seen her in heat. She was supposed to be bred last year and she didn't get bred. So we know how that story could play out. All too familiar, Laura. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, we also, I also did an AI uh, over this past week using some semen that is as old as my oldest daughter. So uh, that's not very old. <laughs> she's sitting here yeah, saying it's not very old. It's 20, 26 years old. And it's, it's very rare semen that I was, you know, really excited to use. So um, I, I bred her with one straw wasn't a hundred percent sure. I thought maybe it was a little bit early and I looked at the semen under the scope and it didn't look great. I'd say maybe 20%, maybe 30% motility. It just didn't look great. And of course it was, you know, I put a drop on at the very beginning of the slide and then a, or at the beginning of the straw, then I went out and bred her and then I put a little drop at the end. It just didn't look great. And I thought, well, you know, well, it only takes a few, you know, so maybe, maybe it'll work. So I went out the next morning and bred her with the only other straw of this that I had and, uh, thought the straw, put it in her, came inside, looked under the scope. I didn't see a single swimmer. So I don't know it, you know, go big or go home, I guess. Yeah. I might as well use both straws if, if, if it's going to take, it's going to take. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll give me a month and we'll see if that took, but it's always, it's always a little nerve wracking to use that precious semen. But then again, if you don't use it, it's, you're not ever going to get anything out of it anyway. So you might as well try something, you know? Well, and that's, that's interesting. You say that because it's something that I've often pondered about, you know, buying semen from older animals and, and generally, you know, they're the, my kind of famous line is, well, they're not making any more of it. But you always kind of wonder about that quality. I mean, in in a hypothetical nutshell, you know, the quality should be good or at the same amount that it sh- that it was when it was collected. However, just because you don't know how it was stored or, or other things there, and it's like, do you do you devalue the price of semen because of bad post thaw collections? You know what I'm saying? There, have you ever thought about that, Laura? Right. No, I have thought about it, and you know, it's kind of the same thing. Like this semen, I know that I'm, I'm at the very best, the third person to have it. And probably there've been more than that, you know, and, and you're right. They're not making it anymore. So 
you know, setting aside the whole question, is semen that is that old still relevant today? What what are your expectations? You know, is it the longer you sit on it, the older it's going to get. I mean, it's so you might as well use it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree on that there. And, and so, Laura, have you always and I know we've had a lot of people, I guess, ask about AI or kind of mention it to us there. But like in your protocols for AI, are you always using that microscope in order to look at motility there? Or? Yes, I always do. If it's and, and yeah. it's just just for me, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm definitely not at a hundred percenter club. I, I do. I feel like I do fairly well with my AIs. I mean, usually if I want to get a dough bread, I'll get her, her bread. Um, but if it's not going to work, I really would like to try to narrow down the reason why it's not working as narrow as I can. So taking out of the equation, if it's bad semen or not, I feel like makes a lot of sense. And and I have the microscope here, so I might as well take a look at it. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. That makes yeah. perfect sense there. Uh, what else? That's about it. Just, you know, trying to enjoy the fall. Um you know, keeping busy at work and, and, uh, fall is always my favorite season. And part of that is because there's that excitement of breeding season. You know, you're, you think about plans for the next year and, you know, you've, everybody I think probably has bred that next national champion every single year, you know, (laughs) or you hope. So, um, November 1st, everybody has national champions at their house, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, the thing, the main thing that's hanging over my head that I just really need to set some time aside and get it done um, is uh, my website, and it is so far behind. And I really need to get that up and get my breeding list up there. And um, we have some animals that we do need to sell, and so I need to to send out that sale that for sale list to people who've inquired and it just takes so much time because I want to do it the right way and I want to get the right information up and uh, just, just need to sit down and do it. Well, Laura, I do want to ask you a question about what you just said, not, not on the website, but on the sales list there. When, and I've been thinking about this and pondering this in my mind here. I'm going to go off topic a little bit, but um, you know, I think about goats like exit ramps, like when, when are those exit ramps? So for you, Laura, when when do you want to, for lack of a better terms, unload the goats or take the exit ramp of the goats um, for your winter, basically? Does that make sense? Yes. Um, most of the time, I like to do it before they're bred because, you know, I know that people, when they bring a new animal into their herd, typically they want to make that own breeding themselves, you know? You know, when it comes to selling kids in the fall, I really try not to sell kids in the fall. I, I really try to have all my sales done before that point. But it seems like every year, some of those keeper kids, I kind of look at them and I think, you know, do I really need to keep this many kids going into the fall? So that's kind of where I am. Do you keep kids into the fall knowing you're going to sell them or are you are always sold out in the spring? I always would try to be sold out in the spring. Um, I kind of look at, you know, I, I've kind of thought about this last couple of days or not a last couple of weeks actually here. And there's, I, I call them the exit ramps because this is when I want, this is when I want them to get off for lack of a better term. Is that when I get off, I mean, get off of my feed bill. Um, but you know, I think, about, I think about May 1st, you know, that's when I want most of my kids, if they're not keeper kids off, you know, and then like, that's kind of the kidding one there. And then there's another exit rampant around September 1st where I didn't like somehow somebody matured and, you know, I'm done with show season and I, maybe I don't want to breed this goat. And I don't want to feed him throughout the winter. So, you know, that's kind of my other exit ramp. We're generally, you know, that May 1st exit ramp is generally our first, it's kind of what we kind of shoot for. And then we generally don't have anything else. But if you catch us in a good mood, as I like to say, um, you might be able to to find something. That's what that's what I'll think as well there. But I also think it's really interesting talking about exit ramps is where's the exit ramp for milkers, you know, or do you have an exit ramp for dry yearlings too about how they mature? Because I've thought about that. And sometimes we've had some goats that haven't matured well into their dry yearlings. So they just, they hit, they, they, they take the exit ramp at about, you know, March 15th of the next year. Yes. And we have had that too. Um, that exit ramp sometimes has been at the sale barn versus, you know, move, moving into good homes. 
And over the years, I think about some of the genetics that hit the sail barn and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I sail barn that. But, you know, on the other hand, genetics are only so much of the equation. You have to like the way they look and, and are they going to do okay for you? And, and, you know, that's another, that's another concern too. So I really like that idea of a May 1st exit ramp though, Cameron. I think that's something that, that I personally would like to shoot for next year because that way you're not holding those kids all through the summer and hopefully you can get them to their new homes before they go through those icky growth stages that you look at them and you're like, you don't look very good anymore. (laughs) And you know, they're going to go through it, you know? Yeah. And I think it's hard. It's really hard to kind of know. and, and, And we've done a whole podcast on it, but it's, it's hard to determine who needs to take the exit ramp and who needs to stay on the freeway for lack of better terms. And, and, I will always tell people that, you know, when, when Catherine will say to me, Hey, well, you just sold a nice kid. I said, that's great. I want people to know that I sell nice kids. And if you get beat by one of the kids, your own, that means you did something right as the breeder too. You know, that's funny that you say that Cameron, because that was something that uh, the daughters and I kind of talked about this year, especially um, some animals that we had sold and they're still in our, in our community of goat people around here, I guess, for lack of a better term, they're at shows that we show show in and they're like winning. It's fun. I mean, it's, you hope that the animals that you sell to other people do well. I didn't know what it would feel like when they come back and beat me. (laughs) I kind of like it. I mean, it's kind of fun too, you know, Um, because you see the joy that that brings to other people and you think, hey, you know, that animal is doing great and somebody else's herd and it still carries my herd name on it. That's really fun, you know? Yeah, absolutely there. I mean, it goes to show how skilled of, of a feeder someone is, for lack of better terms. Um, and, and it shows how skilled you are as a breeder as well. And really, it's kind of the best thing is to get beat by your by your reject goats, as bad as that sounds. Well, and in these cases, you know, it wasn't reject as much as it was, oh my gosh, I've got too many goats and, you know, I have to cut somewhere and I know that they're going to go to a great home and they did and they've done well, but it's just really exciting, as you said, to see somebody else's management doing well with your genetics. And it makes you think maybe in the back of your head that, you know, some, somewhere down the road, you might be making a a positive contribution to that gene pool. And that's, for me, that's like the ultimate compliment that a breeder can get is that you made a positive impact on the gene pool of your pro- pro- chosen breed. So anyway. Yeah. I do have a question for you, Laura, though. Yep. Uh, how long do you give a doe after they freshen to decide to work it all out before you make a final assessment on the animal? Oh, I don't have a good answer on that, Cameron. Um, you know, some of, some of them, you know, immediately, Oh, this isn't going to work. Well, I mean, you know, you hate to say that, but you're like, where did that udder come from? I haven't had an udder like that in my herd for 20 years, you know? And then other times you look at them and you think, well, there's some potential here. My daughter's teeth laugh at me using that word potential. There's some potential here. And then you keep them that second year and you're like, oh yeah, this still isn't working out. So I don't know. I don't have a good answer on that. Do you, do you have kind of a rule of thumb? Give them so long. Oh, it was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting because I was having a conversation with a good friend the other day and he was like, I keep my does in milk for um, at least one month before I, I chip them just to see how they grow and develop and how they change there. And I was like, Okay, that's a good thought there. And so as I'm breeding goats, so this is kind of what gets back to kind of here, I'm thinking about, okay, so we've got a group of do this this time frame, this time frame, this time frame. If we give each goat a month in order to kind of work it out and then figure out how to make a decision there, then we then I kind of know, hey, I can have a certain number of goats out of the barn by the time this next group or this other group comes in. Yeah. And that's Boy, that can kind of pull you through some rough days too, can't it? Okay, if I can just stick it out another two weeks, then I can move, you know, wean down this group and then move another one in. Yeah, that's yeah. I think yeah. that's a good idea. And really, honestly, after a month, they should be climbing up in their production. <coughs> the The post kidding 
uh, weird rump and, and, you know, maybe physical things that come with late pregnancy and kidding should be working through. And I, that, I think that sounds like a good rule of thumb. Yeah, I really liked it. And I, I, I kind of oh. dwelled on it here. So just kind of our random thoughts there. Laura, what's going on though in Adgaland? Well, not to sound not to sound sappy or, or sentimental here. I'm just going to say, is it not refreshing to go on to the Facebook and other social media and actually see some positivity coming through about what's going on in ADGA? Like uh, people are starting to, to consistently get papers back in a timelier manner and with fewer mistakes and uh, tickets are getting solved. And it just seems to me like there's an overall sense of hopefulness. Don't you think? Yeah, I would agree on that. I'm looking at my ADGA list that I, I wrote on my board because um had some different scenarios that I just kind of wanted to track here. Um, and um, I, I got two of my four done. The other one is a paper transfer, but I don't expect that them to get that until for a couple of weeks there. And the other one's just a DNA kit I need to order there. So, um, I mean, I, they're working through things and, and, I always like to go check and NG the print date of, of things as well after they've, they've, they've gotten in the system there or if I need a correction on something or something. So I kind of know when it's going to be printed and then I kind of know when to expect it in the mail as well. Uh, additionally, I have been um, working through my fiance's goats there and most of her papers get sent to her parents' house. So I can tell my in-laws or have her tell her parents that, um, hey, we, you need to look out for these papers as well. Right. And I think, you know, I, nobody expected things to get fixed overnight, I don't think, or I hope they didn't because, you know, it took us a lot longer than that to get in the mess that we're in. But really, I think, you know, hats off to our EC. They are just putting in countless hours uh, to try to get ADGA back on track. And and I just I just feel like hopeful is a great word to use for what's going on in ADGA. We should be getting information soon on committee assignments and committee chairs. Those were due at the end of October. So uh, we, we should be seeing that pretty soon, I think. Yeah, very exciting times there, especially for those that uh, chose to volunteer um, as expertise is always needed in that field there. Um, just seeing a lot of good progress. And again, um, something that, that Laura echoed as her, um, last kind of her last words in our episode on gun convention, she felt hopeful. So uh, lots of good hope out there. Lots of good hope. Yep, for sure. So, um, so it is today is the day after Halloween. So we're recording this on November 1st and, uh, Halloween has all kinds of spooky things. And along with spooky comes, myths and things that go bump in the night. And we are focusing on goat myths this weekend. So the myth busters is what we are. We don't, we don't have. Yeah. So this week we're going to look at some different things and kind of talk about um, some of the things that make, you know, us feel like there's something bump in the night happening there. Exactly. Laura, where do you want to start? Yeah. Let's start with show ring myths. And um, on Cameron and I listened to another podcast called beyond the ring and they were talking about uh, myths on their um, one of their recent episodes too. And one of them they brought out, I texted Cameron and I'm like, Oh my gosh, are you listening to this? Because this is a myth that you hear about all the time in goats. And, and to be honest with you, I kind of hold to this myth depending on the circumstances as being important. So the first one is when you go into the ring, whether you go in first or whether you go in last, that that can impact your placing. Yeah, that is a big myth. And and, and Laura, what I mean, you subscribe to it. What what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, there it's it's there's several parts to that. Okay, I feel like. With certain animals, they may show better going in first, or they may show better going in last. And here's an example of that. Um, we had a doe that we'd been work, working on for several years to get that last elusive leg in her championship. 
And uh, one thing that we kind of discovered at the end, at the end of showing, and once we figured it out, we're like, oh, duh, this makes all this difference in the world. She doesn't like having animals walk behind her. And if she walks into the ring first, or she walks into the ring in the middle of a line, and an exhibitor is behind her, and especially if it's, oh gosh, maybe an inexperienced exhibitor that runs their goat up on her back end or sets her goat up too close to her back end so they're touching her, she flips out, gets mad, and she walks around the ring roached up like, like a mad cat through the rest of the rest of the class. That doesn't look very good. <laughs> so that was a doe that we learned um, to walk last into the ring. It seemed like if she went in at the end and there was nobody behind her, then she was fine through the rest of the class. Even if you had to move her around and she stood at the front of the line, then she was fine. So, so I think it can, can make a difference depending on your animal. And honestly, I think sometimes some judges spend maybe a little more time looking at those first animals as you go in than maybe some of the later ones. And maybe that's just in my mind. What do you think? I always like to look at the beginning and at the end. Um, I feel like in the middle there, you can get lost. And this is coming at purely from a showman perspective there. Um, and I'll put my judge hat on here in a minute, but um, you, there are things that you can do to get, get lost in the class for lack of a better terms. Um, so I always try, I, I, when I show at big shows, I try to go in either first or last or be towards that back half of the pack there. I'm also generally towards the back half of the pack because I am running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to figure out which goat goes in next class. So, um, <laughs> so there's not a rhyme or reason to it. It just happens that way is what you're saying. It, it normally just happens that way. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so putting my judge hat on though, I, I don't think it matters where you go in the class um, because as a judge, if you've got the best goat in the class, we are going to find you. I think it's a little different though, how you can get lost in some bigger classes if you're towards the middle of the pack um, as you move down the placing. So I think about Nigerian dwarf classes with like 16 goats in it. And I feel like you can lose as a judge, you could lose animals um, you know, a, a little bit as well there. I generally will find them in that, you know, next lineup there and then kind of move them up where they need to be. I'm not afraid to move exhibitors up if I, and I'll say, Hey, I, I messed up and I miss you. And I know you need to move up the line there. So, um, but I will tell you that there, I think there is an advantage towards staying towards the ends, um, as a showman there as well. And, and I, I could understand that too. Um, but I also know that sometimes I'm, I do have a method to where I want to go in. So exam, for example, if I know I have a younger kid in a kid class, I'm going to try to do my best not to go in right next to the biggest kid in there. You know, I'm, I'm going to look at the size of, of different animals and make sure that I don't go next to the animal that really points out how small my kid is. Does that make a sense? a difference. Yeah. Not that, not that you should be going by size, but you know, it, it does have an impact sometimes when you're in a class or um, if I know, if I know who the competition is in my class, I may choose not to walk in right next to that animal. Or if I think I have an edge on them, I might do that. Do you ever do you ever have like a method to your madness on deciding where you go in? Absolutely. So if I know I have a pretty average, I'll say average goat in the class there, maybe not a standout, maybe not one of my best ones there, I will I will tend to go towards the middle middle back of the class there. Mm -hmm. If I'm if I feel like I've got a pretty good goat, I will generally go towards the end. Um and I think, you know, when you look at some of the big wigs, and I'll pick on the Toggenberg breed, for example, there, you know, a lot of the premier, you know, exhibitors in those classes were, 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 um, you know, at the end or the last one to enter the class there. So, um, again, it, it helps you subconsciously feel like your goat's getting looked at as well there. Um, so that, that's one thing to consider as well. I mean, you know, you're, you're at least getting a look at 
more often if you're with those goats that are going to place well. Good point. So we can't have everybody, though, standing standing at ringside saying, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> that won't work very well. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't. And then when nobody asks, everybody asks why they want to come in. Well, Laura and Cameron told us to do this. Don't yeah, do don't, that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It, it, you I, know, the, I think. I the, have faith that find the right thing. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. The long and short of it is, um, you know, our judges are highly trained. They, you know, anybody who's been to a training conference knows the work that they go through to become judges. Uh, have confidence that they're going to find that right goat no matter where you are. So um, it's probably a myth to be busted. So, yeah, I would agree on that one there. What about Laura? Does the color of your goat matter in the show ring? And we're not talking the colored breeds, the Toggenbergs, the Oberhosleys, the Sonnens. We're not talking these breeds, but the weird color patterns that might throw off the animal. Does that make sense, Laura? I think it depends on how weird that is. I, when, whenever I think of weird color patterns, a doe that Julie Mathis has, a, a Nubian doe comes to mind. And I don't remember this doe's name. I think her name was Harley Quinn for some reason. Really cool goat, but had a spot in the middle of her back that if you didn't know that's what it was, it made her back look really weak in the chine. And that wasn't it at all. It was just a really cool marking, but an unfortunately cool marking the way it was. So I think sometimes the coloration can matter. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. There, I've got a doe in my herd, for example, now that's got this big white belly and that white continues on, you know, into the barrel, the belly, into that, into that back barrel there. Um, and then there's actually white on her forerunner. So there's times in pictures the forerunner doesn't look as extended because it might blend in with the background. So that yeah. to me is also kind of an you know it makes that optical illusion there that oh it is it is when you get your hands on it okay this is you know a, a solid forerunner here but when you look at it inside or just in in um, you know, kind of just looking at the dough in the lineup, you're like, okay, this might not be the longest border. So I do think, you know, if you've got different color udders there, especially if they are white and they're on white bellied goats, that is a huge disadvantage there. Yeah. We had a, a line of dark, really dark chamois, like very, very dark Brown, but their bellies were a very light tan, almost, almost shavings color. And so kind of the same thing, you know, when you look at it from afar, it looked like she was really tucked up and, and very shallow in the flank. Well, that wasn't the case at all. It's just that her belly blends in with the, with the shavings underneath her. So that was always a challenge to try to take pictures of her someplace that you could put her against a dark enough background that you didn't notice that. Yeah. I think as well there, I mean, white, I think white legged kids are some of I don't want to say the worst, but they, they don't picture well. And and it, it is very much an optical illusion if the entire leg is white there and, and there's some other black there. I sold a kid this year actually to a good friend and um, she kind of had that unfortunate all white leg there. So And those legs tend to look a little postier, um, even though they're not, uh, but it's just the coloration. Yes. No, I've seen that too. And, and you know, there's always – or I've been told along with those white legs, sometimes goes white hooves and people think that the white hooves look weaker or, you know, it's harder to trim white feet. I've had people tell me that, Oh, I don't like white hooves. Well, I, you know, sometimes you get those and especially with those white legged kids. So I, I think, I think that that definitely is an illusion that can be a challenge in the show ring. You just kind of have to know how to, work around that. And, and again, hope that your judges can see beyond that. So um, spotted or white Nubians back when I was a Nubian breeder, you know, um, <laughs> spotted Nubians were kind of like today's uh, blue eyes and moon spots in the Nigerian breed. Everybody wanted those cute little spotted Nubians, but um, it, there, there was a myth that they didn't do very well in the show ring either. And, mm-hmm. and again, I think sometimes it's because of that illusion with the colors, would you think so? Yeah, but I also think, and this is just kind of my observation on it all, 
You know, if you're breeding for color there, you're often sometimes missing out on another seed confirmation there as well. And, and as, you know, Laura and I both know from our Nubian friends is that a lot of the serious Nubian breeders don't necessarily breed for color. Right. You no, know, just like the, our serious Nigerian friends. If you, <laughs> there was just a discussion on the Facebook the other day. If you call them and say that you're looking for blue eyes and moon spots, that pretty much labels you as a not serious breeder in a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds. So uh, that's something else to think about as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely there. Um, I, I have a thought. Have you ever noticed a pattern of color of hooves? Like, cause some Alpines have white, some, some of them have black. Like, have you ever noticed, like, is there any rhyme or reason to that in your herd? So off tangent here, but I'm just curious. It seems to me like I have a couple of lines that tend to have striped hooves because maybe they had like a white leg. So then there was one hoof there and then their kids have some white splashes. So they'll have some lines in their hooves, but I really haven't noticed a lot of different in, difference in hoof quality or being harder to handle or harder to care for. Have you, have you seen any patterns in your herd? No, have I, no. I've, and I just, I just think about as they're coming out, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, and we're, we're kind of looking at them there and you often see the, the, the white hoof or the black hoof first. And if it's a white hoof, generally that's the only time you see it that clean um, is when they're born. Um, but I, I'm just, you know, a random thought came across my mind is do, do, do certain lines have different colors of hooves? And, and is that genetic? I don't know. Just my mind is wandering here. So, sorry. I'll, for have tangent. To, I'll have to watch that a little bit more. Moving back on to the myths though here, I think the biggest thing we want to talk about on the show ring myths is um, the uttering up debate. And with the big change in the Adga national show rule change of, of no milk out. And as people knew, Laura and I were team no milk out um, is the longer you utter up a goat, the more milk the goat will make and the bigger the udder will be. Myth. That is simply not true. Yeah. And, and I want to dig a little bit deeper into this, Laura. I mean, uh, people have, have said that, oh, people are going to utter goats up for hours on hours on end there. And, and you know, judges aren't going to call the situation there on that. And they're not going to punish exhibitors for that as well there. And again, I, you know, if, if you don't think a judge will, this is, this is my two cents here. If you don't think a judge will punish an exhibitor for overuttering their animal, then don't vote for them. Yeah, I think that's a really great rule of thumb, Cameron. If they don't have the backbone to excuse you because of that, then why do you want them to judge? I I think that's, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, the fact of the matter yeah. is, Every animal that that is making milk gets to a point where they are not going to make any more milk. Their the feedback that gives that their body gives them says stop making milk. It's not being removed. It's not being needed. Stop making it. So, you know, you you're not going to get people hauling animals into a show that have been uttered up for a week hoping that they suddenly have um beautiful, amazing capacity when they've never had that before. That's not going to happen. You're going to see other changes. They're going to give you a clue that this animal has been uttered up too long and it, and it won't show well. I, I just feel like that that's something yeah. you don't need to worry about. Oh, okay. And you're doing some serious damage just overall at her health as well when you do that as well. And you really, and this is what I found just kind of through it all is, is you really, um, your animals don't bounce back as well. And generally after a really, really hard udder there, um, it takes them a couple of weeks in order to actually bounce back from that. Yes. If they ever do bounce back from it. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it multiple times on that one there and it's been some of our best goats. Yeah. And that's just, that's hard. So I guess, you know, I guess part of it is too, you have to, you have to think about what your goals are. And uh, yeah. move accordingly. Um, one yeah. other show ring myth, Cameron, that I always think is fun is about um, those fat dry yearlings. That the fat, big fat dry yearlings are the ones that are always going to win. You know, they sail out yeah. there looking like a house on fire, and and you know, so beautiful, so smooth, so level, and that that's what you have to have to win in a junior show are those great big fat dry yearlings. Yeah, that's that's a really big common misconception. Oh, because it's the biggest it'll win, and I, I think that's 
you know, in, in some livestock that rings true, but in Larry Goats, it's a little bit different there. We put less emphasis on stature, and that was a big, you know, change last year in the Edgar scorecard as they took stature out of general appearance there. So to me, it, it really it, – it's quite the myth there, and I get it. You know, everyone loves – myself included, everybody loves a very big dry yearling there that's powerful and wide there, and everybody shows them. And, you know, they generally do well in those early spring shows because they're the only ones that have had a hair taken off of them, and, and they kind of know what's going on compared to the, you know, the March kid that you came out in May and is, is shivering in the corner, you know, and, and – at, at some of those colder shows, dry yearlings tend to do better because they've just been doing it a little longer. Um, but at the end of the day, the fat dry yearlings always aren't going to win and succeed there as well. Um, and, 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 and specifically dairy strength is called out a lot. And I especially love it when you get to end of June, 1st of July, and those, those March and, and April kids are coming on strong. And all of a sudden, it's like they've turned a corner. They know what they're doing in the show ring. They've got enough maturity that you can look at them and see, man, this is really a nice kid. And all of a sudden, this fat, dry yearlings look like fat, dry yearlings. It's it's obvious that they they don't have that edge anymore. So um, if you think that those fat, dry yearlings always win, just stick around and wait till the later summer shows. Usually it's the kids who are really dominating at that point. Yeah, absolutely there on that one there. Laura, are we ready to talk about some breeding myths here? Oh, yeah. Okay. You want to hit the first one? No, why don't you take the lead? Because I am not familiar with these myths as you are. Okay. And maybe, you know, maybe these are just weird myths that I've grown up with. But mm-hmm. one myth is that if you breed the doe earlier in her cycle, you are more apt to have doe kids rather than buck kids. Have you heard that? Uh, no, I never, I never have. Well, it was explained to me that the reason why is that supposedly one of the sperm swims flat, faster than the other one, and one of them lasts longer. So if you breed them earlier than in their cycle, you you're going to have more doe kids than what you are if you have buck kids. Because I guess the doe sperm swim faster than the buck ones. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Huh. Or maybe the bucks swim faster, but the does ovulate later. I don't know. Anyway, the breeding that the timing of your breeding can impact what sex of kids you have. If that is true, people are a lot more scientific about it than what I am because, you know, I, I, I don't breed to that. I've just heard people say that. So. so some days I'm just happy that I get my goats bred. <laughs> Definitely this year. And kind of on that, have you heard that if you use a baby buck, you're going to get more buck kids than if you, it, than doe kids? Because I've been told that before. Oh, well, we used a baby buck this year, so we're going to have all buck kids. And I have not found that out to be true. Yeah. Like, I've, I've never found that out to be true either. But I will say – I. It's interesting you say that because I'm trying to correlate it back to data. Like I'm always you under you, you understand that's how my mind works. I'm oh, trying yeah. to think of it from there, and I, and it's like no, yes, maybe. Like I no, I don't I don't think so. But I will tell you that I generally keep less kids out of baby bucks than I generally do mature bucks because the mature bucks got rid of the big goats. So right, yes, yeah, I I would agree with that. Yeah, that's just one thing, and it's like like you don't. See a lot of, you know, where you're like, oh, yeah, I like the kids out of my XYZ new junior herd sire, but I didn't really keep a lot of them. Right. Or, you know, or I only have junior kids out of them. You know, you don't see, you don't see the, the, in, in some cases you might, but you don't see a lot of junior herd sires breeding goats in February. No, <laughs> not very often. Uh uh-uh. uh. Nope. <laughs> and, and my last favorite breeding myth here. Uh, that I really like is you don't talk about AIs until you are a hundred percent or a thousand percent sure that they are pregnant. Oh yeah. That I, I totally believe in this one. Totally believe in it. I definitely don't. Um, because honestly, I know that whether I, I, I open my big mouth or not, um, that, that I, uh, uh, it, it won't impact the breeding whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, we know that, but still, I just think it's bad juju to talk about it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to hold with that one, Cameron. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too busy trying to lay up the straw in front of them to get a picture of, you know. <laughs> hey, we did that this last breeding. So hopefully, you know, uh, we'll, we'll okay. see if we're not. <laughs> Excellent. There. I, would, I would reveal to the people who you're breeding to who, but I, but I, that's bad luck. No, you can't talk about it yet. Yeah. Not until you see the kids swimming on the ultrasound, Cameron. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I think there are also some myths about management um, that you'll hear people say, and, and some of these might have something behind it and other ones kind of make you go, Hmm, is that really true? Is that really true? Yeah. I, I think the one I, you know, I'll start with this one here because I think it's something that I, I feel very passionate about is, is goats with precocious setters won't freshen well. And I've seen it on both sides of the table where, you know, I've seen them freshen outstandingly and they've done incredibly well. And then I've seen others where um, they didn't even get, you know, they took that exit ramp a little early or made their own exit ramp a little early because they were so precocious that, that the other attachment was lacking. So I guess that, that brings up a question. You have gotten goats um, onto the taco truck in the past because you looked at their precocious udder and you thought, Oh gosh, that's disgusting. Yeah, I have. I I really, really have. And Laura, someday over a couple beverages, I'm going to show you the picture of of what I put on the taco truck. Um, (laughs) Because because I I will tell you what, if, if, and I think it was 2020 was the year. If if somebody would have known that was in the past year, they would probably wouldn't have bought goats from us. Oh, wow. See, because I have, because kind of like you, I've seen precocious udders before that I've looked at. I'm like, ooh, this doesn't look very good. And then when they freshen, you're like, oh, that doesn't look anything like that precocious udder looked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are times on that there. And I, I, yeah, I, sometimes you think that they're, my only problem with precocious udders is when they're hard. Like, that's the biggest concern I have that's when they become a problem is when they get really, really hard because I'm afraid that there's already been some type of infection in there and you have early on mastitis. Again, I am not a licensed veterinarian. There's someone else in my household that can do that job for me. Um, but I'm just telling you from my experience that that could be the case. And, and I would agree with you on that. The precocious udders that are soft and never get hard and, um, you know, stay fairly even and, and don't look scary <laughs> like those hard ones that you think, what is, what, why is this so hard? Um, I don't worry about those nearly as much as I do the ones that have some hardness in them. And, and you're right. You're thinking what's wrong with this? Uh, is this mastitis? Is this scar tissue that's already built up in here? Um, what's going to happen with the stove freshen? So um, I think it's, it's a safe thing to say though, not always, can you discount a doe that's precocious? Yeah. Laura, have you, I mean, what's your experience with precocious does? I feel like you don't have a lot. I don't have a lot. Um, I've had some good ones, just like you. I've had some good ones and I've had some that weren't. I had, I had one doe who uh, had a precocious udder and it really was just very one-sided and it was one teat that got really large and then when she freshened, uh, she was a junior yearling. So when she freshened the next year as a almost two-year-old, um, her udder was very beautiful, but that teat was about three times the size of the other teat. And um, that got her on the exit ramp because of that reason. I hated to do it. She was a beautiful doe every other way, but that was just too much for me to deal with. I just, it was unsightly to me. And so she left other does I've had, um, had a precocious udder and then it went away. And usually it seems to hit about, um, state fair time when, you know, those dry yearlings are really putting on some weight and, uh, that precocious udder comes in and I'm like, Oh yuck. Great. Um, but then they went away and then they seem to freshen. Okay. So you just don't know. Yeah, you really don't, and you got to freshen the goat in order to see it there. So I, yeah, sometimes they they heal on their own, and they just they dry themselves up. And others, you, um, you have to milk them until they are, or you got to dry treat them. I've I've even have got one right now. I'm thinking like, okay, do I need to tell my dad to dry treat this goat? Right, right. You just have to take it on a case by case state statement. I think absolutely, absolutely. So, there. so Cameron, what about the myth? 
the, about the junior champion curse. Yeah. So this is something Catherine uh, actually contributed here because I asked her for some help. And she was like, oh, yeah, talk about the junior champion curse where Vado does really well as a junior doe where she goes junior national champion. You'll never see her again because something's going to happen. She's going to die during kids. She's not going to freshen. Like take, for example, my fiance's um, last year's junior national champion, Murray. It's right now in the barn being a super barn bum. Um, didn't even freshen last year. So, you know, the, the curse of the junior champion there. Um, and at people, people talk about it. Like it's a real thing. Well, I've heard about that with junior cha- national junior champions, you know, probably as much as any junior champion that, you know, Oh gosh, they've got the curse. You know, they, they, they ter- look beautiful as a kid. They're not going to freshen well. And I, I haven't seen that play out very often. I feel like that, that probably a doe that is junior champion, at least, you know, she's got the general appearance part down pat. So in my mind, that should make her just as liable to turn out well, if not more so than a doe that isn't a junior champion. But, you know, I have heard of the curse before too. So, well, it's, it's interesting because one time I asked, I was like, how many times I asked on the Facebook land, how many name a doe? Or it's like name a doe, or how many times has you know a doe went junior national champion and then on to go on to to Edgar national champion? Just out of curiosity, you know, just thinking. Okay, you, you get what I'm saying? Just because I'm I'm kind of curious about that. You know, we had an animal that did that um, in the sable breed, and and so I was just kind of curious, and I I think I counted about five times, and again, that's across a lot of years and a lot of breeds though. So not enough data to label it a curse. Um, but then again, we can't, we can't use data to label curses. Well, I know that people used to talk about that being a curse and, and the justification that I was given is that um, winning a junior champion, sometimes those animals are a little bit more mature or maybe have features that aren't quite so feminine. And, and that's why they, it did well, but I still don't. I, I, I think most of the time it's just a myth. I don't think it's true, but yeah, I, I agree with you on that. At least the data doesn't tell me that it's, that it's true. I would agree. Yeah. So, so what about uh, the myth about if you want, and we touched on this in our episode about uh, dry yearlings versus milking yearlings, but you know, I still think that myth pops up that if you really want your kids to reach their greatest potential, you need to keep them over as a dry dough and not freshen them as a yearling. Yeah. I, that total myth to me on that one there, uh, more time to feed it, uh, more time for it to get fat. I mean, you, you see a lot of cases where they don't reach their true milk production as a two year old, um, or even as a three year old because they're so fat. Um, you know, they're, they're holding something back in, um, their bodies there because they're so fat there. So, to me, again, that's a really big myth there. And I know we had talked about it with, with Dr. Ed, and he was like, we see goats sometimes that choose to grow up and have a lot of skeletal growth because of the fact that they are pregnant and they do need to just they do need to grow up. Right. And it's whether it's a hormonal basis that, that matures them or what, but I I would call this a myth. I would say it's busted. Oh, absolutely. Bust that, bust that myth. They're totally there. Something, some myth that, that I actually, um, so someone told me and I was like, oh, no, you're wrong. No, this doesn't make sense at all. Is go the sucking motion of goats there, uh, as pertains to, uh, when they dam raise or when they use a, a bottle of nipple there, um, is goats need that sucking motion and, and develop that sucking motion there in order to help them develop correctly there. And that pan feeding doesn't do that. And that's a big, it's a big old myth there that, that I, I don't even know where it came from. And there's, I, I haven't seen any data on it as well there. So I, I just crazy to me. Well, I think you more than anybody is in a good position I think that you are in a good position to bust this myth because you guys have pan fed your kids for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's all we've ever done is pan feed there. And I don't understand how people, um, 
well, you know, have time to feed, you know, six bottles a day to the kids and, and, and going out there and washing them out and cleaning them out there. Um, just blows my mind that people still do that and spend all that time cleaning it up. But again, if it works for them, who am I to judge? Um, but yeah, I, I found no evidence at all, you know, that seeing that goats need to suck in order to um, develop correctly. Well, and I, I think it probably is just evolved over time because that's the natural way of things. People, you know, they, they see, every mammal suckling as, as a baby. And they think that's the way it needs to be. But um, I'm kind of eager to learn more about pan feeding because I am tired of washing out suck buckets. So <laughs> it might be something that's on my goal hey. list for 2023. Well, Hey, isn't that Elizabeth's new job? <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's uh, broach that subject next spring. <laughs> she likes to wash them out as much as I do. One myth that um, I hear quite frequently has to do with parasite control. And this may be one of those myths that it really depends on where you live. Because, you know, our lucky listeners that live in parts of the country that don't have parasites, this may be something totally foreign to them. Where those of us that live in the Midwest or in Florida or other places that it's humid and hot and buggy, parasites are a, a constant battle. But a myth that I've heard is that you should put your goats on a on a worming schedule or on the flip side of that, you should never worm your whole herd, just ones that need it. And I think that there are people who are in both camps for different reasons, probably. Yeah. And you know what? I think it's perfectly okay to be in both camps as well there um, because, you know, something that we, we talk about a lot is do what works for you. And clearly, you know, I think about – um, you know, some of our friends in the South who only worm when they need it and they fill mancha all the time and do that there. And I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. And I, I, I love that they do that there. Um, but at the same time as well, you know, I think about what I've done in the past there and we, um, put our goats on a very regimented worming schedule. Well, not regiments, but put them on a worming schedule. And, and by schedule, I mean when we remember to worm there every once in a while, <laughs> um, um, but also use um, a broad spectrum of wormers compared to just one specific product. Well, that and too, I think, you know, for some, like for me, I'm kind of a uh, in the middle camp person, there are certain times of year that everybody gets wormed. So like just in my herd after kidding, um, everybody gets wormed after they kid because I don't warm them while they're pregnant unless they're just really have a bad parasite load. And I can see that by, you know, either doing a fecal on them or famacha or, or whatever. But um, there are some times where everybody gets wormed. And then my bucks always get wormed before breeding season starts too. So, you know, I, I kind of do a combination of it, but I think, I think the myth in this is that there's only one way that fits everybody because definitely there is not. Absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, this is definitely a can of worms uh, subject here. Ha ha. I like that pun. Uh, that's, that's two episodes in a row with really bad puns from Cameron. And I apologize to the listeners for that. Oh no, I think it's, you're, you're quite punny, Cameron. (laughs) I would like the listeners to know kind of last thing. This is not a myth. This is fact because I saw a Snapchat from your daughter during this, that there are currently Oreos on the table where Laura is recording and cedars as well. So the cedars are in a bag. They're not like jumbled together in a mess on my table. Obviously there are some bad things about having my daughter back home. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't everybody have cedars and Oreos on their dining room table? (laughs) Tis the season for that. I will tell you that. Tis the season. I gotta love, gotta love you, Elizabeth. You're pretty fun. Uh, do we want to talk about what we're doing next week on our next episode? Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about this as well here. So um, Laura and I are the uh, keynote speakers at the Southwest Technical College. Um, hold on, let me get it up here. The Southwest Wisconsin Technical College 
Goat Management Academy, um, which will be on November 4th there. So um, we're doing a big presentation with them there, and then I'm leading a breakout session as well. Um, so we're really excited to be the keynote speakers there and um, really honored for the opportunity as well to talk a little bit about something that um, Laura and I are so passionate about. Absolutely. I wish I could be there in person, but I'll be there virtually to say hi to everybody. And um, so just so honored to be asked to be part of this. So um, it'll be fun. So hope we get to see some of our uh, listeners there. And as always, we appreciate you being part of our Goat Gab family and hope you've enjoyed this little lighthearted episode looking at some common myths in the dairy goat world. And if you have some favorite myths that maybe we didn't touch on, uh, you know, reach out to us through our Facebook page or um, message one of us. We'd be glad to chat with you about it and, um, you know, let us let us know what you think. Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody have a great week. And as always, feel free to leave us feedback on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to us and tell a friend. We'd love to love to get more feedback from your friends as well. So as Cameron said, have a great week, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode. (laughs) 